MRAP snack. Today we're going to take a look at what emergency physicians should know about suicide by firearm. I have with me Dr. Chris Barsotti, who is a community emergency physician at Brookshire Medical Center in Western Massachusetts and program director for AFFIRM at Aspen Institute. AFFIRM stands for the American Foundation for Firearm Injury Reduction in Medicine. So Chris, it's nice to have you back on MRAP. We haven't talked to you since back in 2015, which is pre-AFFIRM days. So thanks for coming to talk to us about this topic today. Thank you very much for having me back on. It's great to be back here. How are emergency physicians particularly positioned to make an impact when we're talking about suicide by firearm? We are probably in the best position out of any type of practitioner to make an impact on suicide prevention in the acute setting because we deal with the highest risk population. And when you think about it, people come to ERs because they have a problem and they're there asking for help, which means they're also ready to receive it. With that comes the context of we know what happened that brought them there. And often they come with family or friends who are your allies when you're trying to manage or identify risk factors or protective factors. So if we can put all the puzzle pieces together, if we can collect the right dots, then we can connect them effectively. And with the right interventions and the right communications, we can save lives very easily. So let's start with some basics on the problem. What kind of background information should we know about the problem of suicide by firearms in the United States? How common is it in general or relative to other forms of completed suicide? And are there demographics we should be looking at that make for higher risk? So generally, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death for all ages in the United States. It's the second leading cause of death for people between the ages of 10 and 34, and the fourth leading cause of death for people who are 35 to 54. The rate of death by suicide is highest among middle-aged white men, people like me. What's important to note is that the rate of suicide is increasing. And I think a lot of us have seen this ourselves in our practices during and post-pandemic. From 2000 to 2018, the rate of suicide increased 35%. The demographics of who's at risk, we should probably think about this as who's at risk of attempting suicide and who's at risk of dying by suicide. Each year, there are about 1.4 million suicide attempts, but there are only 50,000 suicide deaths. And what increases the risk of death is what people choose for their lethal means. We know that firearms, which account for half of the suicide deaths, have a lethality rate of about 85 to 90%. Hanging has a lethality rate of about 60 to 70%. And about 25% of suicides are hangings. And all the means combined, poisoning and so forth, has a lethality rate of only about 5 to 15%. So the people with the highest risk of dying by suicide are those with risk factors for suicide ideation and suicide attempt, plus access to lethal means. And when you look at a, a map of the United States and to see where people are dying by firearm injury, you're going to see that it's mostly rural America. When you unpack this, you think, well, are we just unhappier out here in rural America? Or is there some other reason? And the bottom line is we have most of the guns. So the rates of firearm suicide in states with the highest rates of gun ownership are three and a half to four times higher for men and almost eight times higher for women compared to states that have lower gun ownership rates. Another demographic that is at a higher risk for suicide by firearm and hits pretty close to home is first responders. That includes our pre-hospital folks, our emergency nurses, and of course, emergency physicians as well. All right. Well, let's say, not a colleague, let's say I have a patient who's they're not a slam dunk admission for frank suicidal ideation, but I'm, but I'm worried. You know, maybe they're in a high-risk group like we just talked about, or maybe they drink a bit, they're depressed. 
and their family tells me that they have access to a gun. So how do you go about teasing out with this particular patient what the warning signs are and what can we do as emergency physicians in this situation to help reduce the risk for this patient? So the way that I approach these cases is I try to simplify things. And I I think of the outcome of death by suicide as a combination of variables. There are risk factors, there are environmental factors, which include the triggering event and lethal means, and then there are protective factors. And then what I try to do to manage the case is to identify those risk factors that I can mitigate or those environmental factors that I can mitigate, including lethal means restriction, and what I can do to add resilience or augment protective factors. This is really the art of medicine. And we don't have great algorithms to treat patients at risk of suicide. And it's even more complicated because you need fairly close and rigorous outpatient follow-up. And our mental health system and our social safety nets are pretty strained. So a lot has to happen in the near term to secure the safety of that person. And as we'll see, one of the most important and relevant things that we can do is put time and distance between the person at risk of suicide and their selected lethal means, in which case often is a firearm. Right, because it so often is a spontaneous act. It's an act that some people say is impulsive, but there's a lot of momentum behind the idea once it lands in your head. The time between when someone first thinks about ending their life with lethal means and the time by which they act on that thought is very short. 25% of people will act on that suicide ideation within five minutes. And another 25% will do within 20 minutes. And fully, almost 75% of all patients who attempt suicide or who die by suicide act on their ideation within an hour. Understanding that rapidity from the thought entering the mind to acting on that is obviously really important, but then it means that we need to have an approach, a structured approach to helping that patient to finding out what that risk is. The first step is to recognize the context. Because without context and screening for lethal means can lead to difficult conversations with patients and their families. You know, one thing, for example, in triage, everybody gets asked if they feel safe or they're, or they're having suicidal feelings. And in some states, they also ask their patients about whether or not there are firearms in the home. And without the right context, this can be seen by a gun owner as intrusive. And I would never consider asking my patient with a sprained ankle if they had firearm access unless... I thought there was some risk of interpersonal or self-directed violence. So we have to be very cautious about when and how we screen patients. There always has to be a why behind it. And so when you understand and recognize that somebody is at risk for self-directed harm, then it's appropriate and it's, it's much easier to ask about their lethal means because they, there is that connection. And you also find that when the family and friends are there present with you, they recognize that risk. And so they also want to be party to it. Because some of the best ways for us to prevent death by suicide is to get far upstream of the crisis. Suicide is a preventable condition. And the vast majority of people who attempt suicide don't actually die by suicide. And second chances matter. So if somebody uses firearms, for example, as their chosen lethal means, they don't get many second chances. Because of that, we want to make sure that if the patient is sent home, we are protecting them against that impulsivity, that we are providing some layers of safety. And we know that the family members and friends, and in some states, gun shops and other colleagues and or peers in the gun community can help keep their guns safe. Because again, we know that there is a measure of impulsivity in the act of suicide. And if that patient doesn't have access to lethal means at that moment, then 
that increases the chance of preventing death. And this is also important because we know that people, when they develop pseudoideation, research shows us that they don't change their mind about lethal means. So for example, if someone has the ideation of harming themselves with their firearm, and the firearm is no longer available, or, or locked up, or safely stored, they're not going to change their mind and use a rope or, or something else. That does happen, of course. That's not the majority of cases. And this is important also in how we communicate, not just with our patients, but with our community about this, because the best actors for injury prevention regarding suicide and death by firearm are the community members. And you know, I'm, I'm a gun owner. I'm a rifle instructor as well for youth. And I have a number of friends who have owned gun shops or in the retail setting. And there are many stories that I've heard of people coming into gun shops who seem to be at risk of harm. And they can't really decide, like, okay, they really harm themselves or somebody else, but they just see something is off. And they've turned down gun sales to people. And this is, an, this is actually injury prevention in the community. Now, there aren't standards around that right now, but it is something that's happening with increasing frequency. And there are, are now studies with the CDC and with other private foundations to how to engage retailers, firearm retailers, ranges, and the community to best identify people at risk of harm and to keep them and their guns safe. What can you do in some states when the person is not really willing to relinquish their firearms? So yes, I'm getting into red flag laws in various states. Can you tell us the state of red flag laws, sort of the range of, of legislation in various states? And in those states, what is it within our rights to do in terms of securing these firearms? There are red flag laws or extreme risk protection orders or gun violence restraining orders, whatever they're, they're called in the state, in uh, 19 states currently. I don't know the exact number, but I understand that in a few, physicians are petitioners for the activation of a restraint of a extreme risk protection order. In the vast majority of states, including my states of Vermont and Massachusetts, physicians cannot petition to have a patient's gun taken forcibly. There's a lot of debates and discomfort surrounding this topic. Generally, how a red flag law works is that a person is identified to be at risk by a family member or a law enforcement officer, and then that person will engage a DA or a prosecutor to gain permission to seize that person's legal firearms that are then taken away. And that person at risk is often then brought to healthcare, to an emergency room on a welfare check. If this person is then ultimately discharged, he or she then will petition the court to get their gun restored because they have a period of time to demonstrate they're not at risk. And every state's going to have a different burden of proof and different process by which they will say, this person is no longer at risk and therefore his or her right to a firearm should be restored. Do you know anything about how often this has been implemented or if, if, if it's successful? These are relatively new instruments, and there is some evidence that appears to be growing that these laws have been somewhat successful in preventing suicide. The number needed to treat, so to speak, of how many retraining orders you need to affect in order to prevent one's suicide is not quite clear. My job as a physician is to reduce harm, and I want to I reduce that harm and help that person in the most efficient means possible, as quickly as possible. And I know that if I can engage a family member or a friend or a colleague to help store the patient's gun, that we can accomplish that same goal 
without getting law enforcement involved. And then, and then what happens too is this then leads to, like one, if you engage the community, it leads to social norm change. Engaging law enforcement augments the political divisiveness on the topic and it makes it harder to talk about. So that's what I'm seeing presently. I mean, working in a state where we do have red flag laws, I have on occasion had patients under my care who had a restraining order affected against them by a family member. We still don't have guidelines on how this should be done. But at the end of the day, we want to prevent harm and harm against self and harm against others. And sometimes you're stuck. Like Sometimes you have somebody who absolutely is one, isolated, and two, will not work with you, reducing their access to lethal means of harming somebody else or themselves. And in those cases, it's probably appropriate to use that law. However, in my experience, having been counseling patients on lethal means for the last decade, I have found it much easier that if I explain to the patient why I'm concerned and I explain to them why I think they're at risk and I engage their family and I show compassion, that we can accomplish the same goal without getting the law involved. Summary. What do you think that we as emergency physicians should take away from this conversation the next time we go into work? Like, what should we be hanging on to in terms of our thinking about suicide by firearms? Can you just summarize it for us? Well, I think that we should recognize that suicide is common and it's increasing in frequency and that the most lethal means for suicide are firearms. And firearm ownership is increasing in the United States. Uh, Last year, there were about 8.4 to 11 million new gun owners in the country. And the rate of firearm ownership in the United States is about one third, uh, depending on the state you live in. So we can assume that our patients can have access to firearms. If they don't own it themselves, then maybe their parents do. So assume that if you have a patient at risk, that they may have a firearm. And so be comfortable in having the conversation about lethal means, but do so in a way that acknowledges where that patient is coming from, that that patient has rights, and that you're acting genuinely and sincerely in the interest of him or her and and their safety. That makes a lot of sense. And if we don't ask the question, we'll never know. And there could be some real missed opportunities there. So thank you very much, Chris, for coming to talk to us about this again. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here.